Um, can I introduce? Can I introduce our next guest? And really, there is no introduction required for this man at all because uh, I told you last week he would be on, and he's living in Ireland, pro tem. And what happens from here on, I do not know. But let's give him a very big welcome anyway. Peter Sellers. Really. That's a that's a touch of goonery, you yes, see. Yes, a touch of goonery, folks. Yes. <laughs> do you still miss the goons, Mr. Sellers? I can't find them anywhere. <laughs> Oh, God, I don't know what happened. I just put the cat out, you know. It was on fire. Oh. <laughs> God, you've got to do God. something, haven't you? Hello. Everybody having a good time? Good, 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 good. Hello, dear. to Goonpod, the podcast which asks, whatever happened to Molly Nasher and Harold Lane with his Tony Curtis-type haircut? This uh, episode of Goonpod is episode 13, and we're actually recording it on Friday the 13th, which an awful lot of superstitious people would tremble at. Uh, and talking of superstitious people, it's a Peter Seller special. How's that for a link? I'm joined by writer and comedy historian Mark Cousins, who's been involved in, in many projects centered around the life and work of Peter Sellers, including television and radio documentaries, uh, releases of classic recordings such as the uh, four disc celebration of Sellers in the 90s and much, much more. Uh, and he is here to talk about Peter Sellers in general and talk about his book that he's been working on for uh, quite a number of years. So, Mark, welcome. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. We, you and I got talking several weeks ago and you were telling me about this mammoth project you've been involved with or you've been, it's been your sort of life's work, I suppose, this, this <laughs> Sellers chronology. Um, yeah, how, yeah. How's that going? Well, it, yes, it's, it didn't start out as a mammoth project. It started out uh, because I had this idea about writing something about the goons records because i've always been fascinated by the recordings they made for decker in the in the 50s and there's never been much written about those and i thought maybe i can do a bit of research and um write an article for the goon show preservation society or something anyway i was digging around and i found out this and found out a few things and there's not a lot of information to be honest but it got me writing something and i suddenly thought there's more to this really how about let's do something on the records of Peter Sellers? Because I've always been interested in Sellers and I've always been interested in collecting records and I'm interested in recording as well and have been for years. And I thought this brings a lot of my interests together. So I started digging around and doing a bit of research and, <laughs> and then it got bigger and bigger. And I didn't realise quite what I was taking on here. And I was doing this in my spare time and it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until I was writing so much and then somebody, a, a fatal encounter happened because somebody said to me, well, you can't just write about the records. You need to write about the TV and radio programs. So then I started researching. Anyway, one thing led to another. 
And before I knew where I was, I had this massive project on my hands, which had I realised it was going to be so huge, I probably never would have started. But having said that, it is the most intriguing and fascinating uh, thing I think I've ever done um, because uh, there is so much more to Sellers' talent and what he did than even I realised. And I've been a, a fan since, uh, oh, I don't know, the, the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and it was just phenomenal, the workload he had. And I was also researching his stage career, which most people don't know anything much about. Mm. Um, so I ended up with this monster on my hand that was sort of taking over my life, but I was enjoying doing it. And I have to say that the, you know, this is, this has taken me more than 10 years now. It must be more, more than 12 now. And it's pretty much complete. It's not finished, but it's complete. So all the research is done, all the writing's done. Uh, I need to find a publisher but just as importantly as that, I need a way of trimming it down because it is an enormous piece of work and it's something that is so huge you couldn't possibly publish it as it is. What sort of size are we talking? Um, well, when I got started on editing it, it was 1,800 pages. Wow. Um, I've edited it down to about 1,500, um, <laughs> and, but it's still got a long way to go. And it's a very difficult thing because I, I can't cut anything out. I just have to be tighter and crisper and so on about everything that I've written. So what it consists of is it's a kind of day by day. It's not a diary, but it's a day by day chronology of his entire life and all the work that he did. So, uh, you know, if he went into the recording studio, then I've got the details of the session, the date, who produced it, all that kind of thing. If it's a radio show, then I've got all the same information. But I also describe everything. So every single sketch that I've been able to see or listen to or recording, I have described and all the cast members and everything else. So it's a kind of it's a as they say in the States, it's soup to nuts. <laughs> <laughs> How did you manage? Because obviously I would imagine much of the radio content, television content from the 50s would have been wiped. Did you get hold of scripts? What did you? What, what did yeah, you it's, it's been very much a combination of things. So where the recordings exist, like, for instance, The Goon Show, for which a large majority of it, it already exists, then obviously I had all those recordings. Now, I haven't, I, I will admit, I haven't gone and described every single Goon Show because I felt it was pointless because it's already been done. All that information already exists. So, of course, I've described those recordings. So I talk about um, all the detail around the recordings. So, for instance, the, the dates and times of the rehearsals, the actual recordings themselves, and all that sort of thing. Great. But when it comes to when it comes to other shows that he was involved in, because you know, prior to the Goon Show and still at the same time as the Goon Show, he was involved in a lot of other things, particularly one-off programs or a couple of programs in somebody else's series. Then, where the recordings exist, I've listened to those and described them as briefly as I can, or at least Sellers' role in them. Um, and where they don't, I have, where possible, resorted to scripts. So I have done a lot of desk research um, to do this. But probably the most difficult thing was the stage work. Mm. The difficulty there is that um, there is no one source for this kind of information, not really. Um, and so uh, I've had to find all the dates and then you can't really 
find out very much about his performance at any given show. But you can get a general idea from some of the reviews that were in the the press at the time. And that's what I've done. I've scoured all of the reviews that that were ever done for his stage work and pieced that together with the the dates and so on. And obviously I've managed to get hold of theatre programmes and stuff like that. So and he did a phenomenal amount of stage work going right back to his days in the RAF, all the way through the windmill and then his early days in variety, um, which he really got started. Well, he tried to get started in the 40s, but really didn't get started until he was uh, already on radio. And then he finished uh, work on variety in about 1956, by which time he'd certainly had enough. But he carried on stage performing long after that, doing charity shows and one night performances and things like that, as well, of course, as touring with the goons. I was going to ask you about the stage performances, because there's the famous story of him going on stage uh, with a gramophone and some LPs. (laughs) Yes, yes. And playing, was it? Was it Wally Stott's orchestra playing Christmas yeah, tunes? Yeah, it was a it was a Wally Stott record, and and he's recounted that story on a couple of different occasions. On one t- one occasion, I think he calls it an LP. On another occasion, he says it's an EP. But the EP was taken from the LP, and I've seen both of them anyway. But yes, he's he plays about four um, four Christmas songs because he's so fed up basically with with. Uh, audiences not appreciating his performances that he was kind of going on strike and said well if you know i might as well go on stage and play a record that's what he did now i i in my head i always conflated that incident or that appearance with the coventry the infamous coventry performance that um, yeah yeah that's where, where it was that so it was the same night yes basically. right yes okay. i can't remember the exact dates but they you have to remember that the goons played coventry for something like three months Oh, okay. And and I, I did I can't remember the number, but I have worked out because it was in a huge theatre. Um, I have worked out, you know, how many people must have seen it. They were doing two performances most days for the best part of three months, and it wasn't it wasn't a unique thing. I mean, it wasn't just oh, it's the goons. Let's put them on for three months. It was a sort of Christmas time thing that always happened at the Coventry Theatre. One year, I think Harry Seacombe. Um, on his own, you know, did a did a, a stint there, and so this was just a kind of regular stint. But it was, it was the only big thing that the goons really did, um, because they they did appear on variety bills together. Um, I can't remember what year that started in, but they did do it for quite a few years on and off. But they never really appeared on stage together. They were billed as the goons, and they did their solo acts. Yeah, but they weren't they weren't really on stage. Uh, together until the 1955 Coventry show. That's why it stayed in their memory and that's why it became famous or infamous, depending which way you look at it. Sure, sure. So basically you, you started this project looking at the goons' recordings? Yeah, because I'd always been intrigued by um, by those records, really. How come they made this stuff? And they really sound quite professionally done. And yet I didn't know a lot of information. Now, subsequent to that, they did come out on CD and somebody managed to get some date information um, but I wanted to know a little bit more than that um, you know how did they come about how how did they get recorded at all um, were there any other recordings that were never released all that sort of thing yes and and why Decca why didn't they why weren't they with uh, EMI and all that sort of thing so 
some of that's all kind of come out in the in the in the process but there, there's a lot more to those recordings than i think most people realize what now ladies and gentlemen unchained melody yeah, yeah! Well, I'd always, I'd always wondered, you know, maybe I could have done more research, but I'd been scratching around for, for the actual reasons why uh, Unchained Melody and, and Dance With Me Henry had been unreleased. That's quite simple, really. And it was all to do with copyright because they were trying to spoof, you know, existing songs. And that's what they were. Unchained Melody, Dance With Me Henry were existing songs um, that had been recorded by well-known artists. And along comes... Spike Milligan and Peter Sellers and think, oh, we, this is ripe for send up. Let's go and do it. I mean, it's a bit like later on in the 1960s, the Baron Knights were doing very much that sort mm, of thing. Mm. But in the in these in this instance, you know, it hadn't really been done that much. I think they I think they got the probably got the idea from people like Stan Freeberg, who was doing the same kind of thing in the States with with one or two, you know, Yellow Rose of Texas and all that sort of stuff he was doing. Mm. But it didn't go down well with the publishers. And that's where the problem was, because what happened was they got, they, they did the recording and it sort of, you know, the publishers found out that their precious songs were being sent up, you know, by these sort of two idiots. And they didn't, they didn't like the idea at all. And basically it was, it was stopped because of that. And I suspect there might've been an element of, well, there's this young upstart producer, George Martin, who was only in his 20s and was the kind of uh, the junior producer at EMI and the, and the one who got basically given all the, <laughs> all the crappy jobs to do mm-hmm. um, and did all the children's records and the novelty records and all that sort of thing. And, and um, basically they told him no because they, they were threatened to be sued. That's why um, it wasn't released. But what actually happened, I mean, there were there were recordings somehow probably demo records or something had got out and uh, so there were recordings circulating much much later sort of in the in the 70s i i got first got to hear these some of this stuff um because collectors had one or two copies and, and so on so when i got a chance um because i was doing a bit of work with emi i sort of I took this idea to them and said, well, wouldn't it be a good idea if this stuff got released at last? You know, so the interesting thing about that was, I think my timing must have been good because the copyright to Unchained Melody had been bought by Paul McCartney. Mm-hmm. And Paul McCartney was a goon fan. I, I don't know whether he had any personal involvement in this decision, but they had no problem by this time of, of releasing these records. Yeah. And so consequently, it came out as a single. You know, obviously a long, long time after it was recorded. And that was the first kind of its first appearance. And having got involved in releasing all sorts of other comedy stuff with EMI, that's when I sort of came up with this idea of kind of releasing all the sellers stuff. And you can't release the seller stuff without Unchained Melody and Dance With Me Henry. And so that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And it was the celebration of sellers box set that I first heard Jacker and the Flying Saucers. That's right. That's the one. I tried to make sure that everything that was in the archive was put out. Unfortunately, there were a couple of tracks that they wouldn't release that are, that are still not really been heard much of. Um, Such as? But pretty, pretty much. Well, I'll tell you about those in a second, but pretty much everything else was on there. And the idea was 
that it would go out as a box set. And then when it had done the rounds and people had bought it, then they would release the CDs individually. Mm. So that's why they kind of went to great lengths to ensure that recordings of each era were on a separate CD. But that never happened because the box set, I think, sold pretty well. Unfortunately for me, I wasn't on a percentage. Right. <laughs> but but um, so so what happened? It, they never got released. So, you know, separately. So the the um, but the, the tracks that weren't released, there was one um, on his last album, he, um, which was released on United Artists, um, the Sellers Market. Yeah. He, he did a track called um, Sir Fred at Number 10. Oh, this and, is the June Whitfield collaboration. Yes, and there was, and there was a recording, um, What About the Workers, mm. which was supposed to be a single. And the story goes that um, Sellers, at the last minute, decided he didn't want to put it out as a single because he didn't want to offend Margaret Thatcher, who just got elected as Prime Minister, and uh, apparently he was kind of keeping his fingers crossed he might get a knighthood and didn't want to muddy the water by putting <laughs> something out that she might find offensive. <laughs> now, whether that's true or not, the recording never got released. The country is my first concern, and what you get is what you earn. So what about the workers? You have got a lot to learn. There is another recording which was made, I think it was around the time of Peter and Sophia, Oh, right. Which, um, because he did recordings with um, Sophia Loren. Yeah. Um, but he also did separate recordings with Graham Stark to kind of flesh out the, mm. the album. So you've got a mixture of songs and sketches. And they did this improvisation together, which Graham Stark details a little bit in his one of his books on Sellers. And it was, a, it was an improvisation, but it was kind of a bit near the knuckle um, in terms of talking about the Nazis and the Jews, and it was really kind of too much, much too sensitive to release, although apparently it was very funny. And so it's been languishing in the vaults at EMI ever since. I haven't heard it either, and I reckon I've heard pretty much most of Seller's work that, that still exists. So sadly, that, that sits there un unreleased because they were still unwilling to put it out. Oh, so that's that's the seller's equivalent of the Beatles' Carnival of Light, then. <laughs> the Holy Grail for fans, yes. <laughs> but I suspect, I, I suspect, probably like Carnival of Light, you know, if you actually heard it, you'd be like, oh, is that it? Yeah. Um, Mark, uh, uh, one of the things I, I, I'm quite prominent on Twitter, I, I don't think you're a, a, a member of the Twitterati, are you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, can't, I can't find the time for some of this stuff uh, you know write, writing this book has, has uh, taken big chunks out of my life absolutely I can understand that um, but what I did do was I uh, canvassed some people on Twitter who are you know keen on the goons keen on sellers yeah and mm -hmm. I indicated that I was going to be speaking to someone who knew everything about Peter Sellers oh dear um, yes <laughs> Yeah, what colour underpants he wore, which I'm sure they would, he never wore purple or green. It, it's uh, funny you should mention that. <laughs> <laughs> so I've had a, a, a number of people came back with with questions about, you know, Seller's career. Oh, um, okay. And what I want to do during the course of the conversation, if it's appropriate, is is sort of drop the odd question in. Okay? Sure, yes, absolutely. Um, and there's there's a person on Twitter who goes by the handle half man, half pint. 
Okay. <laughs> um, and he, he asked a question, which actually got me really intrigued. And I, and I hope that you can maybe shed some light on this. He asks, is there any background on the television plays Sellers did for ITV in 1956 and any chance they may have survived? These were the ITV television playhouse. Yeah. About these? yeah. Yes. I, I, I can't think of the title of it off the, off the top of my head. But yes, Snow, he Snowball? There were two. There were two that he did uh, together. Um, well, that was one of them. And the Birdwatcher. Um, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Mm. But, but the, the sad news is, of course, they don't exist anymore. I haven't seen a script for them either. And, and the trouble is with a lot of ITV kind of material, uh, unlike the BBC, a lot of stuff got trashed by ITV because of the companies changing hands and yeah. what have you, which was also the problem with Decca. You know, a lot of their archive no longer exists. Uh, if the recordings exist, which in some cases they do, master recordings, um, they don't necessarily have the paperwork, unlike EMI or as it was, or the BBC, who were more like the civil service and kind of dotted every um, every I and crossed every T and made sure everything was filed in triplicate. Mm. Um, so, so getting back to the question, sadly, no, it doesn't exist. It's an unusual thing for him to have got involved in, I think, at that earlier stage in his career. But it was the kind of direction I think he wanted to go. And he tried on a few occasions and it never really worked out because I think once he got through the, the, the stage of being a kind of impersonator, then becoming a character actor, he definitely had his sights set on being a straight actor at various points. And I think he he got knocked back. His confidence probably got knocked in it, and particularly when he did Never Let Go, which I thought was an outstanding yeah. performance. Mm. And he did various other things of, of a similar ilk on television, if you like. And it was never really appreciated. And I don't think he was confident enough to stick his neck out at that time. And so he carried on doing what he was doing. Um, but anyway, so that's the best answer I can give you at the moment. But I have written about it in my book. <laughs> OK, so uh, and that will be coming out in 2025. <laughs> cover yeah. price, £75 or something like that. I <laughs> yeah. so, yes, you, you got it. Yeah. <laughs> Just, just on you know, talking about lost sellers content from the fifties. What's the latest with the promised lost Peter Sellers shorts on Blu-ray? Right. Yes. Yeah. I mean that that is is was great news when I when I first heard about the fact that these things had survived and and were going to be premiered a few years ago. I think it was twenty thirteen. In fact, I know it was twenty thirteen. Mm. They discovered these these missing films. Um, and they were going to be shown at the the South End Film Festival. I got very very excited, and I was I was I wrote a couple of things about them, and was hoping to go, but I couldn't go because it coincided with a house move, and I just couldn't physically couldn't do the two things. Right. So I hadn't actually got to see them at that stage, and then it all went quiet again. And then, as you say, um, this this project was started to restore them and uh, put them out on DVD and, you know, it was crowdfunded and everything. And so that's all going ahead. The thing that a couple of things um, threw a spanner in the works, you know, first of all, COVID, which didn't help at all. Mm. And that sort of kind of was the first delay. Um, but uh, I'm still kind of fairly optimistic that they're going to come out sometime later this year. But the, the unfortunate thing, the guy, the producer, the guy who's, kind of doing all the work and getting it all together. <laughs> Coincidentally, he's got 
caught up in a house move and that fell through and he's got various kind of personal mm. things that he's trying to deal with. So that's slowing it down, but it is going to happen. They also had a bit of a problem with a distributor. So they've been looking for a, another distributor, um, but I'm sort of quietly confident it's going to happen, but it wasn't, it was due to happen sort of earlier this year and hasn't. Um, as far as I know, all of the restoration process is either being completed or has been completed. Um, and it'll be marvellous. I mean, they're not going to set the world on fire, these films, but they are a kind of missing piece in the jigsaw puzzle that is Seller's career. And they kind of happened just when he was really on the cusp of, um, you know, making it big in films because, um, you know, he was just around, it was around about the time he was making The Lady Killers. The first film uh, of all of them, which was, I think, Cold Comfort, was made long before the other two. And the company that made the other two bought the rights to the first one to try and make it into a series. And I think that um, certainly they had permission to make a total of 24 films. Um, oh, okay. But what I have done, I've written a very extensive booklet that, that um, is gonna go with them that explains about how they were made, where they were made, uh, and the whole background to what was going on at the time. So what were, were these sort of like mock documentaries? What were they? They were, they were kind of mock. Well, I always look at them as mock public information films. Ah, there was, yes, yes. There's the, certainly um, the first one, Cold Comfort, is a bit of a spoof on something which I think was coughs and sneezes, which was trying to get people basically to use their handkerchief when they sneezed and not spread germ. It was very, very reminiscent of the sort of, thing they've been trying to do with um covid actually mm, mm. and you look at i think the original is on youtube somewhere coughs and sneezes it was made i think oh i can't remember when it was in made the, in the in 40s the 40s yeah there's a, with yeah. a a very heavy set fellow that's um, right yeah yes. and 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 so that's where the first one and I, they obviously thought hey this is a great idea doing all these but this this spoof and that's when another outfit came along and said yeah we, we want to sort of do the same kind of thing and Maurice Wiltshire, I think, wrote one of them. Oh, right. um, who, Maurice Wiltshire was um, got involved in the Goon Show and also did the the work on the scripts to bring the Telegoons to the television. Mm, that's right. Oh, great. So hopefully, the, maybe not this year, but hopefully, hopefully next year, we could see that could see the light of day then. Well, I'd like to think it will be sooner rather than later. I say I know no no more than you do, really. Mm. Well, if you wish to ask me. I'd say you looked horrible. I could see it the moment I walked in that door. Now, I don't want to put the wind up you, old man, but have you thought you haven't got a cold at all? Sounds to me like you've got something a bit more lasting. Here, you remember poor old Albert Thompson? Fine big chap he was, heavy built, twice your size. You wouldn't have called him a sickly man, would you? Well, he goes home from work one day with the sniffs, and uh, two days later, he's got a funny sounding cough. That's it. Just like that. Well, I go round on the Thursday. No, I'm a liar. It was a Friday. And do you know, the sight of him gave me an horrible shock. Cheeks sunk in, face all flashed, arms all hit away. Couldn't recognise the same fella. Well, I went back on the Sunday, walked up the front path, knocked on the door, missed him by half an hour.
I was conscious I didn't want to really talk too much about the goons on this because <laughs> um, that's for other other episodes, I guess. But there's a, there's a couple of just aspects of Sellers' radio career that I wanted to touch upon. Yeah. In terms of Ted Ray, he described, yes. Ted, he said on a few occasions that Ted Ray taught him a hell of a lot in terms of timing, in terms of performance. Yes. Um, can you sort of elaborate on that at all? Yeah, well, I think the, the thing to remember is Sellers got involved in, in Raise a Laugh from the very first show. In fact, when it, when it was first mooted and piloted, it wasn't called Raise a Laugh. It was called Everything's Under Control. And um, it better, quickly... better title, I think. <laughs> well, it, ra- it rapidly became a series. I mean, Ted Ray was a you know, big noise in those days. And so, you know, it must have been wonderful for Sellers because he'd done one or two odd things. He'd done a lot of um, radio work, but always in somebody else's show, doing a voice or, or two or appearing in a sketch. He'd done Third Division, which which he was involved in and where he met Benteen and Seacombe and so on. But he'd never really been involved in a kind of regular weekly radio series. And this was it. I mean, from from nowhere. The beginning of 1948, he he, he couldn't get on radio at all. By the middle of 1948, he was pretty much by the middle. He was everywhere, all over the radio. And by 1949, he was... Um, appearing at the London Palladium, probably thanks to Gracie Fields, who was the star of the show, and appearing in a weekly variety series, which he did from 1949 to 1954. So it must have been f- phenomenal. And the experience that he must have got from doing that, again, would have been incomparable. You could, he couldn't have got it anywhere else. And you know, Ted Ray was a kind of master comedian of his day, although he's a bit dated now when you listen to some of this stuff. He was kind of the big noise. In fact, the programme, uh, Raise a Laugh, was a, a direct replacement for um, Itmar because te- uh, Tommy Handley had died and yeah. Ted Ray got the slot that was Itmar. So they were almost guaranteed a big audience yeah. from the beginning. So, as I say, I think he was forever thankful for being involved with that. But to go back to the question, I think he realised that he could get something from Ted Ray that he probably wouldn't get from anybody else. So he was kind of constantly watching him and listening to him. And, and of course, the ideal person, because Sellers had a tuned ear because he was a mimic. So he would listen carefully to what was said, how people said it. He did a very good impression of Ted Ray, too. But he learned really not by any particular lessons, but just by watching and being with him. And he appeared on stage a few times with Ted Ray as well. So I think that's really the background to it. Did, did Sellers look back on those days on, te- on Raise a Laugh? Did he look back on it fondly? I don't think he, he didn't talk about it very much. He, he, he does talk about it a bit. There was a tribute to Ted Ray and he spoke about it a little bit then. But of course, you know, everything got overshadowed by the goon show. Uh, which is really why he gave up Razor Laugh. At one stage, he was doing both, you know, and flitting from one place to another. Mm. But I think he had a, a soft spot for that whole period and that whole programme, and, and Ted Ray in particular, because it, he, I think he saw it as a gateway into, certainly in the early days, of being accepted, which, you know, as I say, in 1949, he was only just starting out to become a name. Nobody knew who Peter Sellers even was or cared for that matter. And, it, and, and he, he was 
scarcely seen on stage. It was only really once he got into Razor Laugh, people had heard his name, knew who he was and wanted to see, oh, what does he look like? And where, where can we see him? And let's go to the Variety Theatre and see him. So his stage career started to take off then. Mm -hmm. I, I want to paraphrase a question that Mark Freestone on Twitter asked. Yeah. If the goons hadn't been a thing, let's say the goons never existed. Mm -hmm. On the strength of Sellers' variety show work and, and raise a laugh, do you think he'd have had the career that he did? <laughs> That's an almost impossible question to answer, but I think there would have been something else. You know, he had such a talent and such a work ethic that, you know, when you look at how many goon shows he did and how much stage work he did, you know, in the same week, Mm. He wouldn't have been sitting around idle had had it not been for the Goon Show. He'd be, he'd have got into other things. He'd have got into more ra other radio work. Mm. And there was a lot of talk around the time about trying to make a sort of starring vehicle for Sellers. So he would have his own radio series and later his own TV show. And it never really happened. I mean, he he did get a, um, a few other series, obviously, but it was he was never the sort of person to build a series around because... As, as he said himself, you know, there was no there was no real Peter Sellers insofar as he didn't have a strong personality, which you need to carry a show, a show on your own shoulders. He was always very much part of a team or a supporter or something like that. So I think would he have had his career as it was? It would have been something like it was. Yes, I think so, because the talent was there anyway. He was mm. kind of looking for an outlet. But he did very well. From the goon show because he was part of a team and he was an equal member of a team whereas in razor laugh he really wasn't an equal member yeah um he was a supporter in the goon show it was initially you know a, a, a equal four people and then equal three people and you couldn't say one was more important than any of the others it's a bit like monty python you yeah. know they all had their own talents they were all capable of carrying a show eventually themselves but by being part of a team you, you kind of spread the risk, but you're also uh, creating something that, that otherwise wouldn't be there if it was just you on your own. Absolutely. Yeah. What was Paradise Street? Paradise Street was... <laughs> Throwing you there, haven't I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, Paradise, Paradise Street was a series that, um, if I remember rightly, it was, it was in 1954... There were at least 13 shows, although Sellers only appeared in about half of them. Um, if I remember rightly, he was contracted to appear in a few, preceded by Milligan, who was contracted to appear in a few. But if I remember rightly, Milligan, for one, one reason or another, didn't appear, and mm -hmm. Sellers took his place. Um, it, I think it was devised by Max Bygraves. Um, right. And the idea was that, you know, you had these people it was a sort of street market and you had these people um, who were running various stalls and you go down the street and meet the stallholders and they do and say funny things, that oh, kind of thing. Okay. Un unfortunately, none of those programs exist anymore, which is a shame, yeah. but the scripts are still around. So um, yes, yeah, so he first appeared in May 54 and his last appearance in it was in July 54. Uh, Mark, actually, do you know, I've been remiss because we've, been yakking all this time <laughs> and i've completely failed to ask you how you actually I, mean, you I think you mentioned that you 
discovered Peter Sellers in the 60s, but I'm guessing you must have maybe heard the goons earlier than that. Yeah, well, it's it's kind of interesting when you look back, because I hadn't really thought about this uh, until relatively recently, you know, especially working on this book, you know, how the hell did I get here? <laughs> sort yes. of thing. And and it really, I suppose, in a in a very sort of faint way, it started for me with the telegoons. Now, I wasn't really conscious or 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 in that over enamored by it, but I was I was aware of the telegoons around 64. Yeah. Um, I, I I probably watched it. I don't remember, um, but I certainly wasn't especially influenced by it. But I was conscious of it. The thing that really did it for me was when I was at school in the. It was in the very late sixties. A friend brought in an EP which I hadn't seen before. The, the Goons EP, and I don't think I was conscious of the recordings. I might have heard them, but again, I wasn't really aware of them. And I really liked it. And he had the Peter Sellers EP with Balham Gateway to the South. And I think that was really the beginning of it. That was the kind of genesis of my interest. And at this, around the same time, I, I was very much aware of, of Milligan, who was on and off the television quite a lot and various things. Mm. Um, and I started getting hold of his books. And then the Goon Show scripts books uh, arrived, or the first one did. Um, and I immediately got that. I think it was a Christmas present or something like that. And it really all stemmed from there that the damage was done as, as it was for a lot of other people around the same time, because they printed the, the name and address of a contact for the newly formed Goon Show Preservation Society. And the society had, had just about been formed. I had around the same time, I think it was, I applied for tickets to go and see the last Goon Show of all, which I wasn't able to do. Yep. My ticket, I think, was taken by Princess Anne. and i've never forgiven her but um <laughs> so so i applied to the goon show preservation society and went along to what must be probably about their second meeting or so in london and immediately got hooked and by that time i i managed to collect many of the um original parlophone lps with the music edited out which at the time, yeah, I know you talked about this on a number of other occasions, but frankly, at the time, I didn't even notice because I didn't really know yeah. there was supposed to be music. So it didn't matter as far as I was concerned. And anyway, and so fast forwarding uh, by, you know, by the time you get to the 80s, um, I was attending most of the meetings they were having in London. And I started something called Goon News, which was a kind of supplement to the Goon Show Preservation Society newsletter. And not long after that, realising, you know, the big thing, the big problem for anybody into the Goon Show was the lack of recordings, apart from the Parlophone ones. And there were tapes around and they occasionally broadcast a show. So I set up the Goon Show Preservation Society tape library yeah. um, mm. to, to allow people to kind of exchange recordings. And the quality of them, frankly, nobody cared because it was, you were just grateful to get anything you know, with in this sort of goon-starved world, anybody who had a recording that you hadn't heard before, um, you immediately wanted to hear it. So, so and, and that, as I say, that's where the rot started setting in, because by that time I was collecting all sorts of comedy stuff, and I amassed a huge collection of just about every British comedy record, 45 and LP, that you can think of, because I was just completely hooked by it. I mean, I'd been listening to Round the Horn and... Hancock and the goons and all that sort of stuff for years anyway 
um, and then discovered that some of this stuff had come out on record. And one thing leads to another when you collect anything. And suddenly you find yourself with a house full of vinyl. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All, all, all my all my disposable income at the age of 16, 17 was going towards these tapes from the archive. Yeah. It's yeah. it's a form of it's a form of addiction. Yeah. <laughs> Funny, you, you mentioned last year in Chervil. I was just last night, I was watching, for the purposes of the research, I was watching the Sellers uh, Sykes episode. Yes, where yes. He, where he's uh, little Tommy Grando. Yeah. And I've, obviously I've seen it before, but not for many years. He looked a bit like the character, the Irish character who played in The Naked Truth. A little bit. I know what you yeah. mean. Yes, he's sort yeah. of, yeah, a bit, bit rougher. Yes, I know what you mean. Sorry to keep throwing you about, mate, but don't you know who I am? Yeah, yeah. why don't you and Peter Pan with a crutch? <laughs> no, I'm Tommy Grando, little Tommy Grando. Don't you remember? Wait a minute, didn't you run away to sea? Yeah, that's right. Tommy Grando. Yeah. Little Tommy Grando. And we all used to play round right the back of the old bakery there. That's right, we did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, little Tommy Grando. Yeah, that's right. Little Tommy Grando. You was always hitting me, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, well, it's done you good, hasn't it? I mean, look at you now. Don't I say all the time, I wish somebody had taken the trouble to hit me more often. Well, it's never too late, mate. <laughs> and I'm watching this and I'm thinking, I'm just, you know, like you do, your, my, my, my mind wanders and I was just thinking, I wonder why... Okay, it was October 72 the show was broadcast. I was thinking, wonder what he was doing. Why, why did he... I mean, obviously, he would have been friends with uh, Eric Sykes going back to, you know, the 50s for obvious reasons. And just... But, but wonder what prompted him to agree to just make that guest appearance. And then I was thinking, well, the last going show of all, which you, you obviously you tried to get to see, that was in April that year, wasn't it? So I'm wondering, did... Perhaps did Eric sort of collar him around that time and say, hey, do you want to come on my show? Well, he'd been on Eric Sykes shows before, um, but not not the Sykes show itself. So, I mean, back in the in the 50s, he appeared with Eric Sykes and Hattie Jakes, actually, um, on um, on one of their Saturday night spectacular shows that they used to do in oh, those days. I didn't know that. Right. Okay. Yeah. And and he'd done that a couple of times. Well, it, it was a kind of ITV thing. They had these Saturday night spectaculars and they kind of pick a celebrity to kind of be at the centre of it. And then they, they have a load of guests. And it was, it was very much the same kind of format with different people popping up. But um, I was quite surprised to find out because I remember that show when it first went out. And I remember, um, you know, he was doing things around the same time like Parkinson, but you, you thought, well, you don't see much of Peter Sellers on television. In fact, I don't really remember seeing him much on television at all. You used to see lots of other people, but not Peter Sellers. And I thought, oh, this is unusual. But actually, when you dig into it, he was on television more than you might remember. Uh, and he did an um, appearance on one of the late night satire shows with um, John Wells, I think it was, and John Bird called The End of the Peer Show um, mm -hmm. around the same time. Uh, um, speaking of John Bird... Is it true that Sellers was meant to be in the melting pot with Milligan? I, if I remember rightly, I think so. One of the th one of the things that you rapidly find out with somebody like Peter Sellers, and and it's not uncommon with all sorts of other actors, that you know they've actually there's lots more work that they never did <laughs> than the work that they actually did, and when you look at it, 
some of the choices, and I always maintain that Sellers was pretty poor at choosing the right thing to be in, mm. um, generally. Some of the work he turned down, you think, oh, I wish he'd done this and I wish he'd done that. And there were more and more and more. The trouble is, it's very hard to differentiate between something that might have been a project that perhaps was close to his heart that at the last minute he decided not to do versus something that perhaps a producer would have liked him to do. And he never actually said yes to, but they would try and promote the fact that Peter Sellers was going to be in it in order to get other actors in it and maybe funding. Um, yeah, and I then, see. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of that. Well, I think it probably still goes on, but it certainly went on with Sellers. And I've found all sorts of projects, you know, the talk about him being in this and that. So it's very hard to kind of differentiate unless you can actually find an instance where he's actually categorically come out and said, well, yes, I'd love to be in that. And then the next day turned around and said, but no, I'm not going to. And he did that a lot. Um, was, was there any possibility he might have agreed to play Alf Garnet? I, I, I frankly doubt it. And that's just a personal opinion. Mm. Um, but also, I don't think he really wanted to be involved in a long running thing by that time in his career. I think, I mean, let's face it, he didn't really want to be involved for that long in the Pink Panther films, but was really only involved in them for that length of time because of the money, you know, and, and the people liked it. And, and but he was enjoying it less and less. And I think they were kind of more and more coarse in their in the way they were put together. By that time, of course, he had a lifestyle to maintain, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. to mention a wife. A BBC sitcom ain't going to be paying new camera and new car money, really, is it? I no, no. Yeah. So I can imagine a conversation with Johnny Spate and Dennis Main Wilson, who was the producer, because he knew them both pretty well. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, Dennis Main Wilson was the guy who kind of arranged his original audition at the BBC in the first place. And, so, and produced the goons. Yes, yes. So they, these were kind of, you know, so you, I can imagine the conversation. Oh, I, you know, Johnny Spate, I've written this thing, you know, would you like to be in it or whatever? Yeah. And Sellers saying, yes, oh, yeah, great. I'd love to do that. You know, it sounds really great. And then given the, the passage of some time and other commitments would, um, you know, get somebody to, to turn around and say no on his behalf because he never liked saying no. Yeah. A couple of years before the Sykes episode, he appears in Wilton's The Handsomest Hall in Town. Yes. Which, which, yes. Was, which was really sort of, sort of um, Milligan was driving that. And it was like a charity event to try and get this old music hall res restored. Yeah, uh, and I think that's part of the reason they actually filmed um, The Great McGonagall in the same venue. Mm. It, was all about, it was all about trying to raise money to keep the thing going. And it is going, and it seems to be thriving quite well, and it's got its own website and all that. Yeah, it's quite a rare recording, but if, if anyone's seen it, it's quite, you know, it passes the time, the show. It's about an hour long, but it pretty much climaxes with Sellers at his most terrifying. Oh, yes. It. Um, it's marvellous. He's um, on fantastic form when he's performing this Ballad of Sam Hall, where he's just barracking the audience. It, it's, a, it's a virtuoso performance. I think it's marvellous. It's one of the best performances of his uh, that I think I'd seen. And the, and the sad part about it is that you think this guy could have been a really good straight actor. Even Laurence Olivier, you know, said that Sellers would have made a marvellous straight actor. Yeah. And I think he would have done. I don't think he had the confidence himself 
to carry those sorts of things off. And he didn't have the talent or the skill early enough in his career to have made a, a, um, a headway with it. But that performance is kind of enticing and intriguing. And, you know, this is how things could have gone for Sellers. So it's up the rope I go, up I go. So it's up the rope I go, up I go. So it's up the rope I go. While you bastards down below say, Sam, we told you so. Blast your eyes! Now in heaven's where I dwell, where I dwell. Now in heaven's where I dwell, where I dwell. Now in heaven's where I dwell, but it's a bleeding cell, cause all the oars is down in hell, blast their bleeding eyes! <laughs> There's one particular point in that recording where he motions to throw a hurl a chair out into the audience, and it's mm. very convincing. If Never Let Go had been a commercial and critical success, could you have seen him doing a lot more serious roles? I would like to have thought so, yes. I mean, it, the, the, the thing is, in the end, it comes down to his own confidence and, and his agents having the vision to recognise that actually he wouldn't have to give up his comedy career. He could do both. Now, that, that would probably have been quite difficult in those days, but other people did it later. Um, you know, people who had been comedy stars earlier on in their career, because um, comedy is a young man's game, really, later turned to more straight acting. I'm thinking of people like Norman Wisdom, for example, who later appeared on television in, in some quite straight roles. Um, Sellers could have done that, I think, a bit later on. It's one of those conversations that I will have with friends after a few drinks, you know, um... Not so much at the moment because of obvious reasons, but you know <laughs> yes, what? Yeah. What if you know you have the what if conversation? Yes, yes, um, oh yes. You know what if Sellers had lived for another twenty years and carried on working, and I, I had this sort of notion that he would have been perfect as the Michael Caine character in Educating Rita. That's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought that, but yes, I mean, I I think you know he clearly had the talent, and I think that if you look at him, for instance, in Being There, it's not really a comedy film; it's humorous, but it's it's Sellers portraying a very difficult to portray character, and I think it gives you an insight in what could have happened had he not been so ill. Um, mm. If his health had been good, then who knows what he could he could have done anything. Because he was capable of it, it's just whether he had the self confidence, which you kind, which you need as an actor to carry off. He certainly had the profile, he had the name, but as we know, you know, he was tinkering around um, with another Pink Panther film, and I think primarily as a, again as a as a way of getting some money and then kind of taking a back seat. And in fact, um, I think he had a an idea of perhaps going into production or direction, but he'd said that before and never really did it. I mean, he, be, he became a director once in Mr. Topaz, which wasn't mm. successful as a film. And I don't think it was a particularly good experience as a director. So it warned him off. 
around the time, obviously as well, this this the late seventies, and you've already mentioned Sellers Market, which is a great LP, and it has my favorite, probably what I'd say, my favorite track on any Sellers LP, which is the Whispering Giant. Yes. Oh, yes. With uh, with uh, Miss Irene Handel, it's uh, would you call it a sequel to? Was it Flowers? What's it called? Flowers, Shadows on the Grass. Shadows on the Grass. Yeah. On the grass. yeah. Oh, it definitely was. It was a sequel, and it was kind of deliberate. And I think it must have been lovely because you know Sellers and Irene Handel had a very special relationship, and they clearly loved each other uh, and each other's work. And I think that you know Sellers took every opportunity where he had influence to involve Irene Handel for that reason. He always had a good time working with her, and and she had a good time working with him and particularly in those early days in the in the studio recording shadows in the grass that that track i never did i don't know if it still exists but they did the original recording was about quarter of an hour um and george martin had to kind of edit it down because it was kind of from what i understand it was scripted but it was also improvised Mm. um and so it's a marvelous uh track so when it came to recording his last lp it was, I guess, to some extent, only natural that he'd want her to be involved with it. It was actually, I think, if I remember rightly, that track, unlike most of the rest of it, was recorded in Switzerland um, because originally the plan was to record the whole record in England, I believe, and then they were going to record it in America. But, of course, a lot of this stuff was governed by Sellers' movie schedules, and it ended up with a lot of it being recorded in France and a lot of the post-production work being done in this country. Um, and there were all sorts of tracks that were mooted to be included. I, I have seen the sort of original track list and um, of what they were talking about recording. It's not vastly different from what they ended up with, but it is a little bit different. The original idea for, for instance, for the George Formby competition was actually an Elvis Presley competition. Um, rather than George Formby, but it morphed into Formby, probably because Sellers had a great affection for Formby and the ukulele and all that. But with a lot of the stuff was in the can by the time they got around to getting Irene Handel involved. And there are some lovely photographs of Irene Handel and the producer Ken Barnes um, and Peter Sellers sitting at the mixing console, obviously listening to a playback in the studio when they recorded the thing in uh, 79. So it was lovely to kind of, to, for them to, to kind of get back together and, and reminisce with that, I'm sure it was. I've been putting the name to the face. You are whom I think you are, aren't you? Well, um, <laughs> I, I don't know, I don't know. Well, uh, I, I know you are, my woman's institution's never wrong. Wait till I tell Carice who I've been sitting next to on the whispering jar. That'll make her die, poor bitch. I'm going to get your autograph if that's the last thing I do. I wonder wonder if you'd be an angel and mind signing your name on my bare arm. Well, if that is what you really want, yes. I've got a special signing pencil for the really greats. It's inedible, so that makes it (laughs) semi-permanent. I see, yes. Come on. All right. Wait I'm a waiting. Here we go. Oh, don't you tickle me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you rotten egg. You're doing it on purpose. 
Say when or I'll open my eyes. Say when. No, you're supposed to say when. Oh, when. Peter Sellers, you must be joking. I don't believe it. Peter Sellers. Well, how nice meeting you. Thank you very much. Oh, well, thanks all the same. Mm. Wasn't that you in all those old Maygrave films on telly? You know, you're always on a ship or train no, no, it wasn't. or going no. somewhere. No. You took a jolly good part as a detective. Yes, that was me. But yes. uh, mm. I always think the films are somewhat lacking. You do, eh? Mm. <laughs> anyway, I'll just have to be wafted now to the little girl's room to powder my nose. Good. <laughs> I've always had a lot of affection for Irene Handel. Um, going right back to when I first probably would have seen her as a kid was playing the Dottie grand grandma on Metal Mickey. Um, oh yes, yes. Uh, I've always—I mean, don't want to sound disrespectful. I've always found her a, a, a game old gal, if you know what I mean. She's, she's great. <laughs> oh yeah, and 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 she kind of specialised. That's one of the things with um, character actors, and a point I make in my book that when you look at some of the well-known names and faces, you know, Alistair Sim, Terry Thomas. Um, and Irene Handler and, and many others, they specialise in a particular character and they play, and Sid James, for instance, and they, they played the same character more or less or variations of it again and again and again. And they were very good and very reliable. So if you're a film director, you know, and you're thinking, oh, yes, we want to put this movie together now, who are we going to get to play the dotty old grandma? Um, well, Irene Handel, there isn't anybody else, you know, you would, and that's how they managed to corner the market because they became kind of top of the tree in their speciality. So if you wanted a, a, a bounder and a cad and all that sort of stuff, you would naturally gravitate towards Terry Thomas. Yes. Um, and then Sellers comes along and he doesn't have a particular defined character that he always plays. He's got a bag full of them, um, which obviously was something that sprung out of his days really as a radio voice man in in the same way that it did with John Pertwee, although John Pertwee never really carried it over in the same way that Sellers did. Mm. You know, reading a lot about Sellers recently and he and he very often pick up the phone to Irene Handel. I didn't realise that the, the relationship was such that they were on such a close footing oh, that, you know, he'd phone her I up. I think so. Yeah. I think so. And I think, um, and he was with, with a few other people as well. And I think probably perhaps more so after his mother died. I wouldn't like to say that for definite, but because he, he, he was somebody who was constantly looking for reassurance, I think, that, you know, that he's doing the right thing or, or whatever it is. The people that you've met on the way up are going to be more honest with you than yes. the people that you've met when you get to the top because you end up with the sycophants who are going to say, oh, yes, I think oh, you, if you think it's a good idea, you should definitely do it, you know, whereas you actually want somebody who in a nice way is going to say, are you sure about this? Because I know that I know that he told a story about Irene Handel having seen a screening of the Magic Christian, talking about this, the famous scene with the the, the vat of excrement and yes. not being very happy about that, you know. <laughs> but but the thing is, but she could do that. She could tell him probably quite bluntly and in mm. in, in those with no airs and graces that she didn't like it. Um, yes. Whereas somebody else, you know, they'd just say, "Oh no," they they either wouldn't mention it or they'd say it was wonderful. Yeah, I gather she was quite blunt uh, on, the set, <laughs> on set. Uh, the famous story, I won't quote her, 
someone was explaining the technology behind green screen uh, filming. She, she yeah. was, um, she was, uh, she was quite blunt about her thoughts on that. Look it up if you want. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, just out of interest, what do you have a particular favorite Peter Sellers film? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's the obvious question to ask. And I know you asked other people and it's a, a kind of it, it's like anything. It's like, you know, what's your favourite Beatles album or whatever yeah. or Rolling Stones or anything else for that matter. And of course, yeah. it does vary. Mm. But the one that I keep coming back to, I, I wouldn't saying it's my favourite is probably too strong because it does vary. Um, but the one I keep coming back to is Dr. Strangelove. And I think because it works on so many levels, I love black comedy for one yeah. thing. But Peter Sellers is also given the opportunity to kind of show the richness and variety of his performing skills in a way that is different and better than perhaps The Naked Truth. Because The Naked Truth is a good movie and I love it, but it's definitely a knockabout comedy. And um, Dr. Strangelove most definitely isn't. It's, it's almost like straight acting. He, I, know, I know there are comic parts in it, but it, it, Dr. Strangelove is almost played for straight rather than played for yes. laughs whereas the naked truth and other multi-role parts he had were definitely played for laughs it's a, as i say like that was my answer but it's a very hard one to, yes. to answer because there are so many to choose from i mean he made a lot of rubbish films there's no doubt about that uh, mm. i always maintain that when you look at them even the bad films quite often his performance is the only thing worth watching in the whole movie yeah. because he, he, would, he would be just as committed and dedicated to some of the bad films as he would be to a good film. And he really, I think, struggled to tell the difference sometimes because he was so focused on his role rather than looking at the movie as, as a whole. And of course, if you're making a movie, you put a lot of trust and faith in the producer and you don't really know how it's going to turn out. And quite often he'd be outraged uh, how some of his movies did turn out. He wasn't very pleased with, um, with, with some of the latter films um, and, you know, wanted the negatives destroyed and all this kind of stuff. Um, it's, well, it's, it's easy to see why he was such a huge star because you can't take your eyes off him. The thing that he was quite pretty good at was if you look at the various stages of his career, he did a great impersonation of a stage performer. He did a great impersonation of a radio performer he did a great impersonation mm. of a film actor and they're mm. all quite different and he did all those things right you know he was able to adjust his performance to suit the medium that he was working with and that's what's clever mm -hmm. the story is that uh, Ustinov was offered the Clouseau role in the Pink Panther turned it down yes uh, and, and went off and made Top Carpy yes uh, but I've read that Sellers was offered the Ustinov role in Top Carpy and turned it down um, well, no, I think if I remember rightly, the 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 story is is pretty much that, except that I think Sellers was all set up to be in that film. The problem was, and it, and it is a problem, I think, with lots of films, is that, that um, when it's all set up, it all it all looks great to start with. And you think, oh, yes, that's great. I've always wanted to act with whoever it is. And then the cast changes, the director changes, the location changes, all sorts of things change. And by the time you end up on set to make the movie, you're the only person in it that was in it in the first place. I mean, uh, I think originally, for instance, um, the movie that Sellers was due to make when he had his heart attack in 64 with Billy Wilder. Kiss Me Stupid? 
Yes. I'm never sure whether it's kiss me stupid or kiss me stupid. <laughs> kiss but me anyway. stupid, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, as we know, Dean Martin was in that, but originally it was going to be Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Um, and somebody else. So those these so these things sort of you know happen all the time. And now I've forgotten what you asked me. <laughs> oh, don't worry about it. No, no, I was just wondering whether things again, it's one of these what ifs, how different things may have been had Eustonoff taken the Clouseau role and Sellers had rocked up on top copy and you know. yeah well of course it was originally based on a stage play if i remember rightly or am i thinking of shot in the dark i'm thinking of shot in the dark okay, well top top copy is based on the eric ambler novel which is great yes um, and, it, and it's a fun movie you know it's a great movie i can't i couldn't really see sellers in that but that's really more a tribute to peter eustonoff because once you've seen somebody in a role if they're any good then it's hard to see anybody else in it um, and that's one of the reasons why I think remakes are not always a good idea. A source of much amusement between me and some friends of mine, the, the Sellers Rep Company, which is Graham Stark, David Lodge, basically. Yeah. Um, All his friends, his friends. Yeah. Um, Graham Lindsay Foote on Twitter, he, he wants to know about Sellers' friendship with Graham Stark and, and whether the fact that Stark so often turned up in films with Sellers, whether there was tension on set with other actors? Well, you, you can imagine it, but I think, you know, what you have to look at, he, he was certainly looking after his friends um, because he'd been in the RAF with David Lodge and they'd served in the same gang show together and he met um, Graham Stark in the RAF as well. So their friendships went back a long way. But these were not untalented people. And Graham Stark uh, appeared in lots of radio shows with Peter Sellers as well and on his own. So mm -hmm. he was a kind of he was a known quantity. He was a he had his own career without Peter Sellers. But, you know, it, it, it's not just that. I think it's also actors like to work with people they know uh, and people they can trust. And, and particularly if, if they're well known, then there is a certain amount of, uh, of bringing your friends in, you know, and all that. But I think that certainly some of the directors wouldn't necessarily have stood for it. Sellers might have kicked up a fuss, I don't know. But I doubt it, actually, because he had no reason to, because, you know, they, they were quite talented people. Now, it's different when you perhaps came to David Lodge, who was also a talented supporting actor. He clearly had a great time working with him. And, and I think Blake Edwards recognised that if we get this, this guy involved as well, we're going to probably get a better performance out. Sellers, they're going to have more fun. So hopefully it'll be a better movie. Mm. Um, but I wouldn't say it was just on those grounds alone, because you're risking quite a lot as a director if you're if you allow that to go on too much. Mm. But they, yes, I mean, particularly Graham Stark appeared in loads of stuff on the radio um, with Sellers. Obviously, you know, he was involved in The Goon Show a little yep. um, and lots of other things, too. Dave Lodge was great in Two Way Stretch, which is probably my second or third favourite Sellers film. Dodger. Dodger. Uh -huh. Pipe is dodger. Oh, ta, ta. Closer, winner, mate. There's a bit of a George Ralph coming in. Oh, I'm sorry, Dodge. One or two eggs, Dodge? Uh, no, thank you, Jelly. I feel a bit empty after that trifle you knocked up last night. Yeah, I told him to go easy on the Chevy. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Dodger, mate. Didn't look all that rich to me. Hello. I see the bottoms drop right out of Colonial Cocoa. 
Okay. Well, listen, Mark, it's been fantastic speaking with you today. And uh, I appreciate that we've been all around the houses in terms of topics and questions. And uh, um, I've kept you on your toes, I hope. (laughs) It's a delight to be involved in something like this. And I hope everybody that listens to it enjoys it and wants to participate and wants to know more about the goons and, you know, both as the goons and also as individuals, because I think it's a nice thing to be able to keep alive. Totally. Absolutely. Very last question. I'll let you go. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. You sort of touched briefly on this earlier, but is there an unrealized sellers project that you really wish he'd made? Um. There, there is the unexpected answer to this, and that is there is there is one movie that he was involved with which has never been released and is never likely to be released, and it's something called The Kingdom of Gifts. Now, right. it's some, it was an animated film. The, set, the soundtrack of it was all recorded in the mid to late 70s with Terry Thomas and various other people. Um, but for various reasons, probably too long to go into at the moment, it was never finished, it was never animated, and is never likely to be. So it is an un- unrealized project. Um, but there are countless films that he was scheduled to do when he died, and in fact, many of them were subsequently offered to Dudley Moore. Um, mm. At one stage, there was even talk of him being involved in 10 He was going to be unfaithfully yours. Much of Dudley Moore's latter career was to have been Peter Sellers. And um, when Sellers died, uh, they tried to even create a series of films rather like The Pink Panther to feature Dudley Moore as the ferret. The the ferret? Yes. Um, Rather like The Pink Panther. But I think the film, I can't remember the title of it, the film was actually made as a TV film. Again, it was a Blake Edwards thing. Yeah. But, but, it, but it sadly never happened. Well, for, for which we may, may be thankful, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There's always a silver lining. Oh, well, listen, Mark, as I say, you know, looking forward for when the book comes out and the DVD and Blu-ray of the Lost Sellers shorts, which I know obviously you've written the booklet for. So looking forward to all that stuff coming out. And um, definitely, you know, would like to have you back on again in the future. Now, the pleasure has been mine. I've really enjoyed it. And I look forward to uh, doing some more and and supporting the Goon Pod. Thanks again to Mark. Uh, I'll be back next time with a brand new guest and we will be talking about something fabulous, no doubt. Uh, Please uh, follow on Twitter. It's at Goon Show Pod. Please follow the Goon Show Preservation Society at the GSPS. See you next time. Bye.